Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and today we're focusing on contemporary ideas of democracy. What kinds of democratic system do people want, and what understandings of democracy underpin them? Hello, my name is Jennifer Hudson, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the Department of Political Science and School of Public Policy at University College London. Democracy is what one social scientist famously called an essentially contested concept, one that we are never likely to all agree about. And disagreements over the form of democracy and how it should take have sparked major political conflicts in many democratic countries and raised important questions. For example, how far were politicians in the UK obliged to follow the so-called will of the people as expressed in the Brexit referendum of 2016? Can the strongman democracy pursued by leaders in Hungary, India, and Brazil be called democracy at all? And what should we make of contemporary arguments in favor of bringing more public deliberation into our democratic processes? Questions such as these have prompted a new research project funded by the ESRC and recently launched by UCL's Constitution Unit called Democracy in the UK After Brexit. Led by Dr. Alan Rennick, Working alongside Professors Meg Russell and Ben Lauderdale, the project will explore how people in the UK conceive of democracy and what kinds of democratic arrangement they prefer. It's in the very early stages, but we thought now would be a good time to explore some of its motivating ideas. So I'm delighted to be joined by two of the project's team members. Alan Rennick is Associate Professor in British Politics here in the UCL Department of Political Science and Deputy Director of the Constitution Unit. As I mentioned, he's leading the Democracy in the UK After Brexit project, and he is, of course, familiar to many of you as my co-host on the UCL Uncovering Politics podcast. Meg Russell is Professor of British and Comparative Politics in the UCL Department of Political Science and Director of the Constitution Unit. She's also a Senior Fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe Research Programme, focused on Brexit, Parliament and the Constitution. She's a leading expert on parliaments in the UK and around the world. I'm equally delighted to be joined by a third colleague to give some perspective from outside the research project team. Albert Wheel is Emeritus Professor of Political Theory and Public Policy, also in the Department of Political Science. You may have heard from him on the podcast back in December, talking about his latest book, Modern Social Contract Theory. And in 2018, he published Will of the People, A Modern Myth on many of the themes that will come up in our conversation today. Alan, Meg, and Albert, welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics. Can we start by grounding ourselves in contemporary debates? So if you could each reflect on your various points of expertise, what are the key debates in the UK about how the democratic system operates? Meg, can I start with you? Well, one thing I would say about the UK is we're almost always engaged in some kind of debate about how we might change our democratic system. It's a product of the famous flexibility of the British constitution that it's relatively easy to change. And so we're constantly talking about what we ought to change next. In the 1990s, we had a big program of constitutional reform with the introduction of devolution, a human rights act and other things. And there are bits of that program that were never completed, most notably the reform of the House of Lords, which is still on the agenda. 
But of course, one of the biggest things that was controversial about our democracy was our connection to the European Union. And there were campaigns to end that. And we ended it um, following the Brexit referendum. And that has thrown up a whole new set of controversies. In particular, it's brought into question the role of parliament, traditionally central in our constitution, and the role of the courts and their balance with the the power of the UK executive in Whitehall. So we've got a whole, we've got a sort of long-standing set of controversies, but a whole new set of controversies. Um, it's kicked off territorial controversies as, as well, Brexit. Albert, from where you sit, what are the main controversies? What are the main debates? What I'd like to pick up too, and I'd, I'd like to pick up firstly on uh, Meg's remark about, if you like, the continuing constitutional conversation that goes on in the UK. And I think that's that's very true. Uh, but I think that's also accompanied, if you like, by a continuing tradition of thinking about government. And that thought about government is really the governments need to be strong and relatively centralised and they need to be uh, need to be accountable. And that sort of ideal of government as being strong government, I think, came under pressure uh, between the Brexit referendum and then the 2019 uh, election when we got a, a majority a party in the House of Commons. And clearly, um, a lot of people felt very uncomfortable uh, if you like, with the inability uh, of the government to move its business forward in the House. Now, I think that raises very interesting questions about democracy, because there's a view about democracy which says, well, you should, if 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 there's division of opinion, you should be able to reflect that in your decision making. Um, the other theme that I think needs to be introduced in, in a sort of post-Brexit way is that you can think about democracy as really the challenge of how do we institutionalize public reasoning? How do we how do we institutionalize a collective discussion about what our priorities as a society should be? And there, I think, uh, the real challenge for democracy is really presenting citizens with the trade-offs that are inevitably involved. Um, so, for example, if you want stronger public services, the trade-off for that is that you can't have uh, low taxation. And how you how you convey that message and have a a sensible grown-up discussion about that, I think, is a serious challenge for all democracies, but maybe a particular challenge uh, in the United Kingdom. Albert mentioned the challenges and uh, of democracy and how we put those forward to the public so that they can engage and deliberate effectively. Alan, your work has focused a lot on those questions in recent years. What are what are the main debates you've been looking at? Yeah, I think there are many really important questions about the role of the public in our democracy. So Meg um, emphasised the uh, contestation of the roles of the three kind of traditional branches of the state democratic system. And we've seen a lot of debate about what role should referendums have uh, in our system? What kind of um, meaning should we attach to the result? of a referendum, a debate that Albert has been uh, a leading participant in. We've done a lot of work around how referendums should be run in order to ensure that so far as possible they uh, allow the kind of public reasoning that Albert was talking about in his uh, response. And we've also seen other mechanisms through which potentially the public can come to be involved uh, directly in politics, particularly with the rise of so-called citizens' assemblies. So members of the public selected by, by lot uh, rather than by election or some other procedure, who come together over a period in order to learn about an issue, deliberate on it in depth. And we've seen quite a lot of those taking place in the UK uh, just in the last few years. The UK Parliament has uh, commissioned two of them. The Scottish Parliament has done a couple. The Welsh Parliament has done one. And there's been a whole slew of them at, actually at local level as well. Lots of uh, local 
uh, local authorities running uh, citizens' assemblies, um, and thinking about the role that they can play in the overall democratic system and how they can contribute to uh, the quality of political discourse and political debate, I think is really very important. Meg, you started off our, our, our reflections thinking about this kind of ongoing conversation about the constitution in the UK. And I wondered to what extent the, the British public are a part of that conversation. How meaningful do they play in that conversation? Or is this something that's happening in the kind of upper echelons of, uh, amongst political elites? But what role do the public play in, in thinking about a changing UK constitution? Well, that's a really interesting question. And of course, it's connected to some of the things that Alan has been talking about, about the use of referendums. I mean, classically, the way that uh, the British public would influence the political process was by choosing between parties at elections, uh, and maybe based on their reading of promises in their manifestos, which there have been, of which there have been many in this field. But more recently, we've seen the growth of referendums. Um, there were referendums um, in the 1970s on devolution in Scotland and Wales, um, and of course on our membership of the, um, as it was then, European community. And we've had various referendums. In the late 90s, part of Labour's programme was implemented through first asking the people of Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and indeed London whether they wanted a level of devolved government. And so at times, the public are very closely involved, but they're not really so much, haven't been so much involved in the more deliberative aspects, which Alan was just talking about. They, they get kind of a yes, no question from time to time. And sometimes they can use those opportunities to, they, the referendums can sometimes become a proxy for other things. So, you know, if you're angry with the government, you might vote against what the government wants. I think we saw that with the 2011 referendum on change to the voting system, where uh, the Liberal Democrats got a bit of a kicking because um, they were the ones who wanted to change the voting system. And people were angry with them for going into coalition with the Conservatives. So referendums are a bit of a blunt tool, really, as a means of um, consulting the public. Let's abstract ourselves from these debates and let's consider how we should understand democracy itself. Um, Albert, I'm going to come to you. There are different forms of democracies and different ways of conceptualizing democracy. From your perspective as a political theorist, how can we best structure our thinking about these different variations? Yeah, well, I think it's helpful really to distinguish between what you might think of as the minimum standards that any political system needs to be able to satisfy in order to call itself a democracy. And then other ways of thinking about um, democracy. I mean, you referred, Jennifer, in your introduction to democracy as an essentially contested concept. But but some people think, well, look, there's a, there's a certain core concept to democracy, which is to do, for example, with political equality and uh, accountability uh, of the government to the people. But, but above that core concept, there may be different conceptions, different ways of thinking about democracy, which are, which are equally valid on which suit particular political traditions, historical circumstances and so on. So in terms, of, I think, of the, the key uh, minimum assumptions, um, I would say that there were three. First of all, I think there has to be some clearly reasonably strong uh, principle of political equality that operates in the system. Uh, so, for example, um, I would not call Switzerland before 1971, before women got the vote at federal level, I wouldn't have called that a democracy, that, because that's, that's in, institutionalising uh, a, uh, a form of inequality. Uh, and we can think of other uh, places in the world where um, access to voting rights is made very hard. So I think that disqualifies those, those systems from being democracies. 
then I think you do have to, in some sense, uh, make government depend upon um, public opinion. I mean, somebody once said of Britain in the 18th century that it was uh, despotism tempered by riot. Uh, well, you don't. That's not a democracy. A democracy is one in which there's a discussion in public opinion and the government is accountable to and depends for its tenure in office uh, upon a state of public opinion. What I mean by that is I don't mean it should be tracking public opinion every day and every week and so on. But there has to be some systematic relationship between what people want from government and which people uh, occupy offices in government. And then I think the final element in a democracy, it's it's almost so basic that one wouldn't, so one hesitates to mention it, but a, a democracy has to deal with disagreement. I mean, democracy arises precisely because people disagree about things where there has to be some common action. Democracy is not different people going off on their own bicycles. It's people in the same vehicle having to agree on the direction of travel and the speed of travel and so on. And, and, and people disagree about that, and you need a democracy to be able to resolve those disagreements. So I would say that those were core elements of a democracy. I mean, above that, I think democracy can take uh, very different forms. I mean, speaking for myself, for example, I would not regard Switzerland as being more democratic than Germany, just because Switzerland takes lots of decisions using referendums and direct public participation, and Germany doesn't. They're just just different forms of of democracy. Um, Similarly, whether you think of democracy, as I was saying earlier about strong centralised government, as there being, so to speak, a party that can control a majority in the parliament, which is the traditional British view, uh, which breaks, if you like, the relationship between the proportion of votes a party gets and the seats that it has in the legislature, or whether you take a view which says, well, no, parliamentary democracy really means institutionalising the differences of support that different parties get. And if that means coalition government or minority governments, then that's just the price you have to pay for democracy. I don't think these are necessarily better or worse ways of thinking about democracy, but they're certainly different ways of thinking about democracy. Thank you, Albert. And I'm going to come back to the the three points that you raised on equality and accountability and managing disagreement in a minute. Alan, I want to come to you and I want to get your views on on how we might characterize this variation in conceptions of democracy. Yeah, I think when I hear people debating different types of democracy, I often hear three different concepts being used. So people often refer to representative democracy and direct democracy. And that kind of um, distinction between those two fundamental types of democracy is very common. And then increasingly, we also hear a third one, which is deliberative democracy. So this kind of triangle, if you like, of different versions of democracy. And I guess I find a triangle a rather dissatisfying way of thinking about variation in democracy, because I want to have sort of dimensions of variation along which different versions of of democracy vary. And and I don't quite understand how a triangle of three things can sit in terms of dimensions. And it seems to me that there are there are two really important dimensions of variation among these different types of democracy that also fit in very much with the debates that we have about democracy in the UK. So one of those is about who's doing politics and the degree to which politics is being done by representatives or by members of the public. And the other is kind of about how we do politics. Um, And this is where the idea of deliberative politics comes in. The, The idea that Politics is about more than just decision-making. It's also about understanding and reflecting on the process of of will formation, to use some slightly wonkish language. It's the process by which people come to their opinions that are then fed into the decision-making process. 
So deliberative democracy has become really important uh, in debates in political theory over the last three, four decades or so, and has increasingly spilled into democratic practice as well. And I think if we understand democracy in terms of these kind of two dimensions, then actually we can see that we can combine uh, these different elements in any way. So when we use the term deliberative democracy, quite often we're thinking particularly about deliberation by members of the public. And we're thinking about opportunities for the public to deliberate more through things like citizens' assemblies. But you can also have deliberation in uh, representative institutions. And actually, parliamentary democracy, in many ways, is an ideal of democracy where uh, representatives of a broad range of different views come together and deliberate with each other in order to produce outcomes. Whereas there's also another view of elite-led democracy where essentially you have the it's, it's sort of the strongman view of democracy that you mentioned in, in your introduction, Jennifer, where the people elect a strong leader and then it is the job of that leader to do stuff. So the emphasis is on doing rather than on talking, if you like. The, the, the idea is we, we know what the right answer is. We just need the leader to do it. Um, and then you also have a more sort of referendum-based conception of direct democracy that, 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 again, doesn't place a lot of emphasis upon deliberation, that just thinks, well, the people know the right answers, the people have uh, intuitions, and those should be expressed through things like referendums. And I think we see all of these different understandings of democracy today. And um, you mentioned our project at the start. We're very keen to find out uh, the the weight that is attached to these different understandings of democracy in the, among members of the public in the UK. Well, we're going to come to that um, next, Alan. But I want to I want to just uh, bring Meg in this uh, conversation here. Meg, are there particular British traditions of democracy that we can think of or or talk about? Well, I think I would talk about the rules of democracy, which takes you back to a rather sort of institutional view of all of this and say that one of the, some of the fundamental things that characterize the way we do things in Britain is our system has evolved. It was never designed. So we never sat down with a blank piece of paper, unlike many states which were, for example, subject to revolution or defeat in war and said, what kind of a constitution do we want? How do we want these power relationships to work? Instead, we had a gradual evolution where power shifted initially from the monarch to parliament, and then the franchise was widened gradually in a series of stages in the 19th and 20th century to bring the people more into the equation. And where that leaves us is with this famously unwritten constitution, where we have no document that has the status of so-called higher law. There's no document which sits above parliament. So our guiding principle continues to be, or it's much talked about, the principle of parliamentary sovereignty, that ultimately it, it's politicians, it's political decisions that guide us, not legal decisions, and that the judges are not really part of political decision-making in the UK. But there are numerous challenges to parliamentary sovereignty. EU membership was one of them, and we've got rid of that. Um, but referendums actually challenge the principle of parliamentary sovereignty because they maybe put the people above parliament. And then post-Brexit, we've seen these big arguments in the courts, two big uh, cases in the Supreme Court where the judges have got involved in a way which has been quite disruptive and aggravated a lot of people. And there's so we've got post-Brexit, post that big referendum 
um, controversies about parliament, controversies about the judges and controversies about, you know, what our central principles should be now. To my mind, what the judges were doing in those two Supreme Court cases was actually putting parliament back at the center of decision making. So was actually defending parliamentary sovereignty. But other people saw that as the judges interfering. Um, and the executive argued, the political executive argued, that it was trying to implement, in, in Albert's phrase, the will of the people, and that parliament was getting in the way. So it's all got very confusing. And I think we need to really get back to some of these first principles and ask what it is that we want our guiding rules in the UK to be, which is one of the things this project is seeking to do. I want to close off this conversation just by circling back to you, Albert. Um, Alan's mentioned this, this, this kind of third part of the triangle about deliberative democracy and the importance of deliberation. In your view, is that any kind of remedy for some of the challenges around managing disagreement that we see in democracies growing in recent years, or a perceived lack of accountability from politicians to the people? Is a more deliberative democracy, by means of involving the public, a remedy for some of these challenges? Well, I, I mean, I would say, I mean, Alan knows much more about the, the experience of, of these mini publics that, than I do. But from, from my own uh, reading of the literature, one of the most interesting things that comes out from those processes is that people um, discover that they can learn about politics. They discover that their previous views were mistaken in debate and discussion. They, revi they revise their views and so on. And they will come out and say, well, before I went into this process, really, my views weren't worth anything. And now I feel I've learned something and, and developed and so on. And I think that contains a very important sort of value, which is at the heart of deliberation. It's a very simple thought, really, which is fallibility. We can all make mistakes. And one of the ways of thinking about deliberation is it's about institutionalizing ways by which we can collectively, so to speak, correct our own mistakes. Um, and uh, one of the difficulties of strongman politics uh, is that strongmen can make mistakes. Uh, and if they're given lots of power, um, their mistakes can be um, very serious in terms of their implications. Just think of Donald Trump, for example. Thank you, Albert. Let's talk about this new research project. Alan and Meg, you're about to, to embark on an exciting uh, project examining attitudes towards democracy in the UK. Incredibly timely, given where we are post-Brexit, um, and really thinking about how democracy works as we unfold over the next couple of years. Alan, how, tell us how you're going to go about understanding attitudes towards democracy or the practice of democracy in the UK. Yeah, so we're interested in, as you say, finding out what people think about democracy. Uh, so all of the above, we're, we're going to be exploring both the kind of deep conceptions of democracy, what kind of ideas, even if people haven't kind of reflected on them um, very consciously, just what, what are the ideas of democracy that underpin people's ideas? And then what are the concrete institutional preferences that they have, uh, if you like, among the, the, the specific, the more specific questions that Meg has been raising. Um, and we're interested in how those attitudes vary. Uh, so how do they vary between different people uh, ac across society, different groups in society? How do they vary uh, depending on people's uh, political preferences? Uh, so we've mentioned Brexit a number of times and the degree to which uh, the Brexit process has created strains in the UK's constitutional structures. So to what degree uh, do people's preferences regarding democracy and institutions relate to their Brexit preferences? To what extent is that a reflection of the fact that actually many people don't have kind of intrinsic views on democracy in itself, but rather they think about uh, these questions through 
the impact of different institutional arrangements on outcomes, so more kind of instrumental uh, view of democracy. And we're very interested in exploring the difference between the attitudes that people simply have when you ask them questions and the attitudes that they have once they've had an opportunity to uh, think and deliberate and learn, as uh, Albert was just suggesting. Uh, So we want to do all of that. We're going to do that through a number of big surveys um, and also by running a citizens' assembly. So we're going to start off with a big survey to give us a kind of starting point in understanding people's attitudes, asking a broad range of different questions. Then we'll be running a citizens' assembly, um, looking at at least at some of these uh, questions. And you can't cover the whole terrain in a single citizens' assembly. It's, It's really crucial that people have time to properly think and reflect on the questions that they're exploring. And then we'll follow that up with a further Citizens' Assembly. Actually, one of the interesting questions about Citizens' Assemblies is how do they relate to the the wider public? If you have this fantastic deliberative experience for a small group of people, how can you then convey that to the wider population and ensure that it helps inform wider public debates? So we'll be looking at that through a second survey as well. Meg, you're going to be working on the project alongside Alan and, and Professor Ben Lauderdale. Um, what are the what are the key elements of the project that you're looking forward to getting into? Well, we want to know what the public thinks about all of this, and we hope that the project will contribute to um, trying to heal what's been quite a fractured time in British politics. But I think that in, in terms of what we're doing, one thing that I would add to what Alan has already said is that that fractured nature of politics is one of the challenges for the project, because it's one of the things that you, you've seen recently in British politics, and you see it in other systems around the world, that people's position on what the institutions of democracy should be tends to be somewhat colored by what particular policy outcomes they want at that moment. So, for example, um, when it came to the Supreme Court's intervention um, in Brexit, if you were a Brexit supporter, you tended to think that the Supreme Court's intervention was invalid, whereas if you were maybe um, not in favour of Brexit, you saw the Supreme Court's intervention was valid. So, simply asking people a question in an opinion poll, do you think that the Supreme Court should have a role in British politics? You're likely to calculate that through what your views on Brexit were. Whereas actually, if the if the topic had been different, you know, you might have a very different view as to how powerful the prime minister should be, whether the prime minister's Jeremy Corbyn uh, or Boris Johnson. So we somehow need to get beyond the immediate environment to ask people rather abstract questions about their views on democracy, which is quite challenging. And we're going to try and use experimental methods um, to do that in the surveys. And then the deliberation elements, I think, will be really important because people have to get beyond the here and now and think about the principles of how they want the system to be structured, irrespective of which party's in power or what policy outcome they want in the next few months. There are lots of questions that are that are cropping up that I want to pose to Albert, but I, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna choose this one. We mentioned Meg mentioned Brexit and how that might then color how people view uh, wh- how they viewed the court's decision and what the court was was you know ultimately getting at. Albert, Brexit's this new cleavage in, in British politics, but do you think that? people's preferences for Brexit can be captured in their preferences for democracy? Or do you think those are two fundamentally kind of different concepts? What, what, what might be driving what, if at all? 
Oh, I think that's a that's a very interesting question, and um, uh, and it's I think as as Meg was saying just just a couple of minutes ago, I mean it's clear that preferences about democracy stem very much from sort of substantive um, policy positions. Um, so, to to my mind, if one's sort of moving beyond Brexit, uh, to some extent, I think if you're thinking about citizens' assemblies, um, then the clue is in the name, uh, which is does does participation in the citizens' assembly change one's view about citizenship and do people come to a better understanding about what citizenship involves which may which may require people reaching out across their own you know preferences and their own policy positions to be thinking about it from different points of view so i think one of the things that's exciting about this program actually is that you can think about it as a piece of action research if you like i mean you can think about it as as a way of thinking about how we as a society through getting to people to think in, a, in, in terms of citizenship, might reach out beyond, if you like, their prejudices, their opinions, their firmly held views, towards thinking about what it means to participate in a public dialogue. Finally, um, let's look at what we hope to learn from this project. Um, Meg, if I can come back to you, what would, what would be the thing that you want to, to learn coming out of this, this research project? Well, the key thing is that we have been through this very tumultuous period with lots of controversies about the, the the structure and nature of our democracy, and Brexit has fundamentally changed things. We no longer are we don't have uh, EU law as higher law. We're making decisions at the UK level for the first time in decades. Um, how do people want that system to work? Who do they think should have the power? Um, I think one of the most important questions, the fundamental question to me, is how um, how constrained people want the UK executive to be. Um, there were words in the Conservative Manifesto about needing to think about, and I made this point at the start, really, the relationship between um, government, parliament, and the courts. To me, that's about what we would say, what we would call checks and balances, which we actually explored in a previous podcast. To what extent do we want to constrain the executive through the courts, through parliament, through other mechanisms? Um, And I think we want to get at that, as I say, in quite an abstract sense. So it's not a matter of, do you like this particular prime minister? But how constrained do you think prime ministers should be and what should the checks be on their power? And I very much endorse what Albert said earlier about strong men making mistakes. And we are seeing this shift around the globe towards sort of strong man democracy. Personally, I think we don't want to go there in the UK. We shouldn't go there. Uh, But we need to know what the public thinks in order to resolve those dilemmas and maybe refresh our institutions somewhat. Alan, you're going to be leading this research. Um, Some final reflections from you on what you want to achieve, what you would like the impact to be. Well, two points, I guess. Firstly, these are really huge fundamental debates that are taking place in British politics today that are live debates in British politics today. Um, Parliamentarians uh, in Westminster and actually in the other uh, legislatures across the UK are thinking about these issues a great deal. And we hope to um, influence their thinking and help um, them in making uh, decisions about uh, future institutional structures for the UK. Second point is, as you emphasised at the start, Jennifer, we're very much at the early stages of this project and we're still developing the precise agenda for exactly what we will be doing. So it is not too late for the action research to start immediately and for people to get in touch with us and give us their thoughts on what exactly we should be focusing on. 
So there you go. A, an open invitation to get in touch with, with Alan, Megan, and Ben Lauderdale, who'll be leading the project. Um, I think we're incredibly lucky to have our, our colleagues in the Constitution Unit to lead this research. Um, it's live, it's big, it's important, um, and it will shape the, the kind of democracy that we have uh, in years to come. So I'm very interested and, and looking forward to the, to the work that you all will put in and, and the answers that you find. Um, thank you to Meg Russell, Alan Rennick, and Albert Wheel for joining me today. This is the last episode in this series of UCL Uncovering Politics. UCL's winter term is drawing to a close, and we're taking a break for a few weeks to recharge our batteries. We'll be back on the 29th of April, ready to explore more political science research and the insights it brings for understanding the political world around us. Next time, we're going to be joined by Professor David Hudson of the University of Birmingham and me, sharing insights from our Development Engagement Lab project. We're going to talk about public attitudes towards sustainable development and aid in Britain, France, Germany, and the U.S., and the challenges facing development organizations in making the case for sustainable development. Remember to make sure that you don't miss out on future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics. All you need is to subscribe, and you can do so on Apple, Spotify, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Jennifer Hudson. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you very much for listening.